Hey everyone, we just launched a new show called Request for Startups. In the first season, we've got a rotating lineup of tech founders and investors joining me to share their requests for startups they want to exist in the world, and also share their stories of navigating the idea maze in different sectors so founders don't have to reinvent the wheel anymore. The first episode is out now. We cover better dating apps, references as a service, and we work for productivity. Listen first, then build. Video episodes of the show are on our Substack. You'll find a link in the description. So one day you're building a website, the next day you're shooting a video, then you're like prototyping an app and, and you're not really building this equity in a, right. in a very specific type of output. I started to focus on the industries before I started to focus on skills. That, like the beginnings of that are starting to take shape in a community and I think that's another thing that people massively underestimate how long that takes to like get people who've never met each other, who live all over the world, who like can build something sustainable together. So I think the broader goal is like redirect opportunity back into the community using the distribution that Visualize Value can build. If I have distribution as Mr. Beast as bigger than UMG or Sony, or at least getting there, right? Somebody can guarantee the distribution of this thing and be invested in it at the same time. Like if I wanted to fund artists and then put those artists on in my next video, it's just this positive sum game that can just exactly. snowball out. Welcome to Media Empires, where we sit down with the most influential media creators right now to learn exactly how they built their empires. Our aim is to extract the secrets of top tier podcasters, newsletter authors, and media creators who are breaking the old rules for media success. Whether you're looking to start your own empire, or simply curious about the nuts and bolts behind media businesses, you'll find valuable insights and tactics in each episode. Grab your headphones, let's dive in. Riverside is a presenting sponsor of Media Empires. It's an essential part of our tech stack. Riverside makes scaling a media business possible for us and so many podcasters and creators. It's our online recording studio, not just for the show, but across the entire podcast network. Riverside lets us record interviews with the best guests from wherever they are in the world. Our team can also cut short-form clips directly from Riverside. Because as any listener of this show knows, you create once and then publish everywhere. Sign up for Riverside.fm today by following the link in the description box and use our code MEDIAEMPIRES to get a 20% discount. Hey, everybody. In today's conversation, I interviewed Jack Butcher, the founder of Visualize Value. Prior to starting the company, Jack spent 10 years working with Fortune 500 companies as the creative director for multi-billion dollar brands. In search of fun and freedom, he started his own ad agency and found neither. After two years of honing in on the business, Jack built Visualize Value, a media platform with a network of mentors and audience over 500,000 people. Join us for a masterclass on how Jack transitioned his agency into a community-driven million-dollar business with effective branding and communication of complex ideas. Without further ado, here's Jack Butcher. Jack, welcome to Media Empire's podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, mate. I appreciate it. So for those who may not be super familiar, why don't you introduce what is Visualize Value and how did you come to create it? All right. I'll try and do the TLDR. The... Yeah, we'll, get, we'll so, get into it later. So Visualize Value today is part media brand, part education company, part um, digital community. It came about over a long series of iterations. I started my career as a graphic designer, studied graphic design in the UK, moved to New York straight out of school, got a job through sending replies to 100 Craigslist postings and bounced around the agency world in New York for about eight or 10 years. And then felt like I had enough experience or misplaced confidence to start my own agency, I'll call it that. And then uh, just quickly found out how that was a really uh, difficult game to play for somebody with my skill set. So just iterated on the agency business slowly, probably eight or 10 different versions of that and ended up at Visualize Value through all of these kind of failed ventures beforehand. Well, is, why was it a difficult game for, for someone with your skill set? Because I was just talking with, with Greg on the podcast who is, is digging his, his agency lifestyle and what it does for him. So I think it's a, uh, especially in the world I came from, it was like Fortune 500 advertising clients, which is more, I don't, wouldn't say, it's like more of a political game than a creative game, or it's at least yeah. weighted more heavily on the political side than the, yeah. uh, than the creative side. And I was in the creative teams in those studios. And then when I started my own thing, 
I arrogantly believed that, you know, just doing amazing creative work was going to be the unlock to succeed in that world. And that's not true. There's an art to all of the communication, all of the business development, all of the, you know, the stuff you have to do and the availability you have to have around the clock for, you know, clients in every tier of an organization. And the really, you have to build your organization to kind of absorb that inefficiency and that means hiring people. That means getting an uh, office in New York because your clients want to come and visit and be kind of taken out for dinner and all of those things. So yeah. not knocking that game is just not, not, uh, not something that I was interested in building. So I kind of took it to the level that I could and then realized, okay, to, to keep playing in this world, at least with these types of clients on the other side, uh, I have to either fully commit to that and kind of move a little bit away from my my what I would consider my core skill set. And that just wasn't interesting to me. And your core skill set is, or your superpower is? Graphic design and specifically distilling concepts into visuals that yes. can quickly transmit an idea. Yes. And so that brings us to visualize value. So, you know, to summarize, you spent eight to 10 years uh, in the sort of, um, you know, world before visualize value that you were just discussing. And now you say, okay, I'm, st- I'm starting my own thing. Uh, you know, today we might call it a personal holding company that, you know, language is just starting out. You, you were kind of early on this tip. How do you decide what to, what to start first? Or it traces through the evolution of, of, of visualized value. Sure. So um, the, I'll start just a few iterations before, which was the agency business. So the first agency business I made was, or I started was purely based on a, a client that I had. So I was kind of straddling my full-time job and doing client work on the side. And then when I got that client business up to a sustainable level where I could kind of replace my salary, that's when I quit and, and started an agency. I was really a, a very well-branded freelancer, you know, yeah. just uh, <laughs> had an LLC, had a website, had a portfolio. Yeah. And uh, it was just me and maybe a few contractors for production stuff. And as I just explained, like that model was just insanely difficult to to scale or to, to just get any type of rest or break from. And yeah. you just do any creative ask from these huge companies. So one day you're building a website, the next day you're shooting a video, then you're like prototyping an app and, and you're not really building this equity in a, right. in a very specific type of output. I started to focus on the industries before I started to focus on skills. The first client I had was an automotive client. So I was like, maybe I should start an automotive agency, but that didn't solve my problem. That was just... Yeah. The same problem with different, uh, like a number of different clients. So then uh, I went even nicher than that. I worked at a recruiting startup for a while. So then I was going to build kind of white label uh, recruiting media and like distribution systems for like these people that are trying to recruit uh, people for agency jobs, things of that nature. And again, I was just ran into the same problem. And then you know, all of these iterations later, there was, I built a podcast agency and that was more dialed in because we had set deliverables, but it just, it's still kind of just as it scaled, it got more and more inefficient. And, um, then I kind of looked back and thought through all of the thing, like the connective tissue through all of those things. And even in my agency jobs before that, the thing that had always brought me opportunity or got me into a room that I wasn't in before I did this thing was, was making, originally there were slide decks. So it's kind of taking all of this disparate thinking from strategists, designers, account managers, or, and turning it into some cohesive story. And it was the forcing function for that was being asked to present something. So as soon as someone's like, you have to stand in front of a room yeah. of people and deliver this pitch. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to wing this because I'm, you know, I was a complete amateur. I had to know every single thing and thought about it really comprehensively and tell this story but you never get paid for that in the agency world that's the stuff you do for free <laughs> and that's arguably the the thing that yeah. like creates the value right is the, the thing that yeah. kicks the relationship off the thing that convinces uh agency clients to work with you there was this uh phrase that used to go around in our agency it was called sell the dream deliver the nightmare yeah <laughs> And that comes from this idea of you go in with this really sexy, incredibly articulate pitch, and then it gets, you know, the agreement is made, and it just gets released into this, like, completely inefficient machine. You know, you have, like, 
top tier executives pitching this thing and then they ship it down to like an intern that's been on the job for a week so they can hit their margins. I, it just took me a long time to realize that that thing was valuable. I was just doing it in the wrong context. So I took this, it was still a service business when I started this, but I would sit down with entrepreneurs going to like little entrepreneurial meetups in New York and hear people describe the problem they're having. And so many of these problems are communication problems. Somebody has like IP locked up in their head or this system that they've produced over the course of their career. And every time they try and explain it, it just comes out as this like garble of words and being able to turn that into, you know, five or 10 slides that help them deliver that pitch more effectively. That was the first iteration of Visualized Value as a service business. And to be honest, I still worked the same amount of time. I was still like burning myself out working a yeah. ton, but it was way more energizing work because like most of the impact translates. You're not doing 100% effort and getting 5% results. You're like, you're close to delivering on the thing that you uh, created and you work really closely with principles of the business, right? People who actually have agency. Right. And that was the problem that I, I felt so many times in big agency world is like, there's just this entropy between the thing you create and then eventually yeah. hits the market and nobody even knows what we're even right. trying to do. It was, it was like, it just blew my mind. I can give a anonymized example of a Please. agency uh, project I worked on once. So for a huge financial company and they would write emails on retainer. So just be like the emails that you get from, you know, they're in your promotions inbox or whatever. Yep. They, they had a fixed rate for these emails of $30,000 each to make. And they take, I timed myself doing one once, took 18 minutes. Wow. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to start an agency business at first. I was like, this is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, well, the $30,000 is for all of the back and forth that it takes to get that thing. Yeah. And then you never even find out who clicked on it, like wh what result yeah. it was, what it drove, because there's so much inefficiency in between. So anyway... The, long, the kind of TLDR of all of it was like, get closer to the decision maker, but you go way, way down in terms of prestige, right? You're working yeah. with one person, two person, tiny little businesses, and they can't pay you $30,000 an email either, but you have this really tight connection and feedback loop to what you're doing, and you'll make a draft, give it to them, they'll pitch it and say, well, this wasn't quite working, let's change that, and then they pitch it again the next day, Versus just working in this like vacuum of feedback in the agency world. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, uh, that's how the service component of Visualized Value came about. And I did that for probably a year, 18 months before doing anything else with it. Yes, yeah, fascinating. I mean, the irony, yeah, you start something called an agency and then you work with people who don't have much agency yeah, themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, one thing you understood early and I've written a bunch about is this idea of leverage, where it's like back when you're in the agency world, you were pushing a boulder uphill. And if you stopped, pushing, it would just like fall on, on yeah, top of yeah, you. Yeah. Whereas you started to build things that you'd push the boulder up the hill and they would gain enough momentum that you wouldn't have to keep pushing for them to keep gaining in value for you, both reputationally and, and economically. So, so why don't you um, take us further in that evolution? Because there's always the, this, this idea with creators in terms of like, there's so many different products one could build, so many different ways to monetize. Um, and, you know, from courses to content to shows to different platforms um, to funds to recruiting to, you know, um, conferences. I mean, all, all, all mm -hmm. different types of ways. I'm sure you've, you've, you know, thought of them all and you've tried a number of them. Why don't you take us through some of the things that you tried, some of the things that worked, some of the things that didn't work and how you thought about, like, where are the places you want to play and places you don't want to play? Yeah, so the transition from the pure service play to leveraged media business of some description the first the first like chapter of that was figuring out how to publish work that attracted clients so before i always was confused about this in the agency world how we would you know do a lot of work under nda a lot of the work we could never publish so there was no demonstration of what we're capable of out in the world that somebody could like make a decision based on right it was all just sitting in rooms like that would take you i don't know six or seven back and forth to get an rfp and respond to an yeah. rfp um so i started posting the visualized value artwork initially as 
a lead generation tool for the service business. So I was, I was working with like small little funds, um, a logistics company, a couple of like productized agency businesses and helping them articulate what they did. But that work was really hard to get people to connect with who weren't in those businesses, right? People who aren't, don't care about logistics or 3PL aren't going to get excited about a visualization of how 3PL works. So I, I, I can't even remember where this idea came from, but it was when I kind of got introduced to Twitter and I was reading a lot and trying to just, this is where the concept of leverage was even introduced to me. It was reading all of these people that are typically in the technology business or like way higher up the marketing business than I was. And all of the stuff that I was consuming, I was then just putting back out through this filter of these visuals. So the same thing I would do for a conversation with a founder, I could do with somebody who's written a book and not have to meet them. And then the huge unlock early on was Twitter being a network where there was a chance that if I tag them in that output, they might even see it. And they might even amplify it and increase my network effect with like the perfect person, right? The person who's consuming yeah. those ideas and is interested in those ideas. Uh, it was just this crazy, um, yeah, this network effect that I was able to reverse engineer from a combination of using Twitter and just consuming these ideas offline that were really influential in what I was trying to build. So I was like trying to solve my own problem and using this format and this consistent output as like a, a way to catalog that journey in this like meta way. And that was bringing me service clients. But at a certain point, the demand for service clients got too high. So yeah. then you think, okay, I could find people to do this with me. I could build like a hyper-specialized agency. And I still do a little bit of that stuff. And there are... Um, you know, there are exceptions to the rule where it's just stuff that's so yeah. interesting and fun. They just want to work on it. But what I started to do is just listen to feedback from people who were following the, on the social side of things. I used to run these polls on Instagram, like probably weekly saying, one, getting to know people, like what are you doing, what are you building, what are you interested in? And found out that you know, most of the people were in my situation. They're, pro they're creatives or they're like stuck in a full-time job and they have ambitions to do something outside of that or get closer to their like really specific skill set and do that for a living. So just finding out how true that was, that helped me basically reverse engineer products that helped me make that transition. So the first thing was this really simple daily planner yeah. which I had figured out how to use while I was straddling my two jobs. So I was like, I need to write down what I have to get done. Here's a simple format. I think I charged nine bucks for that. I was like, let's just do a proof of concept. I'm not going to make it free because I'm never going to get feedback on whether or not it's valuable if it's free, right? Yeah. So people paid $9 for it. I invited them to a WhatsApp group, spoke to them every day. Everybody's posting their, you know, their filled out planners each day. And that, I guess, was the kind of the anchor to, to building new products as a result of that feedback loop. So listening to those people, um, I'm sure you're familiar with David Perel. Yes. Of course. Uh, he tweeted out maybe a, a year into Visualize Value consistently posting that he was interested in learning this skill set of turning ideas into visuals. So using the Twitter network again, quote, tweet that. Who else is interested in this? There's enough interest to warrant spending, you know, a couple of weeks head down building right. something that, that articulates how to learn this. So that's really when the leverage started to take off. When this first product came out, or I would consider the first like proper product was called How to Visualize Value, which is a, probably a 40 lesson curriculum on how you take an idea and turn it into like a tangible visual output. Right. Um, yeah, and it's, it's basically been that process over and over again. Like that, how to visualize value became build once, sell twice, which is how do you take your specific skill set as a creative or somebody has a very specific set of experiences, productize it, turn it into a curriculum, produce content that consistently 
introduces your ideas and your perspective to people and you know grow the grow your network that way yeah um one of the things one of the principles you've um or, or things that you've said is underratedly really important is coming up with a great name um and, and visualize value is a is an awesome name it, it's a unique phrase it's really fun to say and it um it makes it clear what it does every every time you say it um and what, what do you think are the principles of, of a great name uh, like or, or, or like when you give advice on how to pick great names, like what what's really important to get right, or what do people not fully appreciate? I think it's it's a really nuanced thing. It's like this weird balance between it being explanatory to some extent, but also having some intrigue baked into yeah. it. Um, it's uh, I'm a huge fan of Village, Village Global, by the way. I, I think that's a great uh, example of this same phenomenon in action. It's like there's these contrasting ideas in there that make yeah. you want to understand what it's about, especially when you're operating in a digital world. It's just like the landscape is completely infinite, right? And the instinct yeah. is to use the language that you've been taught to use or the language you use on a job description or something, which is like the complete commoditized version of the thing. Like I'm a graphic designer is like the worst positioning you could possibly have as a graphic designer. And that's non-obvious for most yeah. people, but it is. And the names that have come out of the products are also kind of iterative from Twitter or like some kind of networked conversation where actually a customer of ours, we were, we were going to call the first product Design Fundamentals. Hmm. and someone's just like why are you going to call it that that's ridiculous like <laughs> like you have all this equity in this name yeah. just call it that how to visualize value and like i would imagine not doing that would have completely changed the trajectory of this thing yeah. not to mention when i was trying to develop the curriculum that idea is so big you don't even know where to start like where do you start breaking down design fund like the house I'm sitting in was designed, right? The, the city is designed. <laughs> yeah. It's just a ridiculously broad thing. So a good name, I think, gets you focused on what it is you're about too. It's helpful to you and it's helpful to anybody that's consuming your stuff. And again, the Village Global thing is like explains your thesis about the world in a way that when people start to know more, it's like, wow, this name really, like they really did think about this and what they're doing yeah. really represents what is um, contained in that name. And that's, I think, beautifully what has happened with Visualized Value is it kind of takes on a, a meaning of its own for so many people. And you're, you're kind of making a suggestion to begin with. The idea of living up to your name is, I think, yeah. embedded in this too. It's like, this is a, this is a hypothesis. Right. If I can like, create work underneath this name for three years, five years, 10 years, that thing just, it's just this like, like semantic equity that you can build up and um it's really hard to conceptualize that until you've been at it for a really long time as well where it's like yeah you're just looking you're looking at it from your perspective and again the internet is just this vehicle where you stick at it long enough like you will find out whether it's right or wrong yeah in, in due time <laughs> totally there's this there's this famous quote um I think it's by Picasso. When art, art critics get together, they talk about form and meaning. And when artists get together, they talk about turpentine or you know where to buy yeah, cheap yeah, turpentine. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so for this media company that this podcast is going to sit under, I'm calling it Turpentine. And the idea is that it's experts talking to other experts you yeah, know, about the, the craft of what they're doing. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I think that is, there's, like, there's this element of an inside joke too that I think is really powerful in yeah. names. Totally. I, this is another David Perel show. I did an interview with him probably 2020. We talked about it as like these little mini epiphanies where you're just yeah. like, man, I wish I thought of that. Or I wish I like, I, I wish I just got there before. And that I think is like indicative of something bigger that you can build underneath. It's like you're just tapping yeah. into something true in some way. And then you have all of this opportunity that sits beneath that. Totally. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, talk about where you want to take visualized value because there's a lot, you know, you have a number of different media assets. You have a strong foundation, strong brand, strong audience. There's a number of different things you could do with it. How are you thinking about some of those decisions in terms of what you're deciding to do, what you're deciding to not to do? Like, where do you want to take it? So 
broadly speaking, I think the goal is to not transition it to contributors benefiting from it, but like this, it almost becomes this community owned thing over time. So it's the goal has always been to help people clarify what they're good at and find opportunity to do what they want to do more, um, more often, more sustainably, et cetera, et cetera. So that like the beginnings of that are starting to take shape in a community. And I think that's another thing that people massively underestimate how long that takes to like get people who've never met each other, who live all over the world, who like can build something sustainable together. So I think the broader goal is like redirect opportunity back into the community using the distribution that visualized value can build because that's another thing that I think it's really hard to be great at the thing and build distribution for the thing. And some people are going to be able to do that. Some people aren't. And this is where like my fledgling understanding of crypto and like decentralization lives where if you have this thing that represents something that can capture attention broadly from the market and then like, you know, distribute that, put it in different directions. Like even to use a tangible example, that old service that I used to provide to startups. And this doesn't, you know, I'm using crypto here as like something that I'm interested in. It's not necessarily necessary to make this happen, but a company approaches me asking for a visual summary of X, a pitch deck, whatever else. I now have hundreds of people in the community that I know have gone through the curriculum that are now making a living doing this. I can direct that opportunity towards. So one there's obviously this the job board thesis or the kind of you know redirecting attention to tangentially related things but i think over time where i want to get to is like you're you're kind of is the least packet loss between the thing that you're projecting and the thing that your community is able to produce um invest in together like even build white label or even build products together right whereas like there's a vv suite of products where these people in the community solve the problem and you know they're incredible developers designers etc but they don't have distribution so we can distribute it we can brand it uh we can even get the first hundred thousand users inside our community and then continue to iterate on it from there so i think that's kind of a, a little loose but that's the broader yeah. like the broad direction i want to take it just to brainstorm with you for a minute, visualizing value and you know turning like ideas into pictures or into designs that that, that make sense is such a. Um, by the way, maybe the name hieroglyphics is a cool thing to to, to use for something. That's just a cool word to say. Yeah, um, yeah. The um, is such a kind of fundamental uh, concept that there's so much you can do with it. I, I like the the community approach, the distribution approach that you're taking. A lot of startups will probably want to have you on on their cap table. One thing that's interesting is, is what I'm seeing with Mr. Beast is, you know, he, he's nailed this one thing, which is, you know, a pretty fundamental thing, which is like being the world's best YouTuber. And now he's kind of leveraging that to partner with other people who want to partner with him in ways that scale himself. So my friend is running his venture firm, and he doesn't really have to do much, you know, besides like plug in when appropriate and leverage his brand. And he, like he gets a, a stake in that, and I could see um, you potentially doing that too, where you become the best at, at what you do. You continue to build this massive distribution channel and community, and your community says, "Hey, I want to create this thing, and I want to give some percentage of it to visualize value." And maybe using crypto, what you're talking about, you give it back to the community in, right, in, right. in that way. And so it could be a whole ecosystem, you know, of of all the related like services or things you could do. Yeah, I I, I love the Mr. Beast example and the like the way that just changes the dynamic of so much stuff where I actually am helping out a startup at the moment in the music space that you start to think about if you, if, if I have distribution as Mr. Beast, as bigger than UMG or Sony, or at least getting there, right? Like yeah. all of the structure of all of these music deals, like it just flips it on its head based on the fact that Somebody can guarantee the distribution of this thing and 
be invested in it at the same time. Like if I wanted to fund artists and then put those artists on in my next video, it's just this positive sum game that can just exactly. snowball out. And I, like all the mental models on it break when there's just one person making the decision to make that happen, right? Yeah, exactly. I want to talk about some of the ideas in your courses and in your, in your writing as well. Let's talk a bit about build once, sell, sell twice. What are some of the non-obvious principles there in terms of like how to do that effectively or what people don't fully appreciate when they're thinking about how to do that? I think this model that we're trying to install with that is not... It says build once, sell twice, which is the most obvious execution of it, which is basically you know, build products with zero marginal cost of replication. So information, software, things of that nature. I think that even applies though at the blog post level, at the Instagram post level, at the tweet level. It's, you know, write once, get read twice, record once, get played twice, um, compose a song once, play it twice. And even, I think people, it still feels, I mean, social, digital, all of that stuff is so, we're so submerged in it and so surrounded by it, but it's still like what 1% of people are creating on these platforms, 99% are consuming. And the leverage that comes from, you know, 100 people reading your thing. It's hard to imagine, like every time you type something out, there's 100 people standing in front of you reading it. And I think just breaking some of those, like, um, basically trying to convince people that everybody on the internet is real. It's yeah. like, uh, it's like the, the overarching yeah. theme here and the, the nature of distribution is such that there's definitely a volume game, but it's also convincing people that the person on the other end of the screen is real and that you don't need that many people to truly believe in the thing to start to find traction and get so narrow that you can actually start to build equity in something, whether that's like, a specific style of artwork or it's uh, you know, a specific style of music or a, a way in which you dissect the a, a 10K. There's just so, yeah. it's just literally anything that you've learned in your career. Um, and then one of, the, one of the main principles in that curriculum is like constraining yourself to the point you can be consistent. And that was a huge thing I learned with the black and white visuals, which was really a decision I made to like, reduce the amount of time I would spend staring at a blank page. Yeah. It's like showing up to the gym and not knowing what you're going to work out on, right? You're just sort yeah. of looking around the machines. You go over here, you do a little bit of something. And, yeah. and like having a workout when you walk in, you just do it. The equity that gets built up in that thing. The other thing I try and dispel is like the, you're building equity in this thing, regardless if anybody sees it either, right? It's like just yeah. the ability for you to show up and produce the thing every day even the notion of like doing something for a hundred days in a row is like your yeah. top zero point something percent in that thing because it's such totally. a rare, it's just such a rare occurrence. I actually got that um, idea really early on in my career. There's a free service, it's called Daily UI. Hmm. It's, and it's, a, it's an email sequence that just emails you a design brief every day. Wow. And I, I think it was Dribble that was the initial uh, platform where people would post that stuff. But it's just a really powerful idea that, oh, you don't have a design portfolio, put your email in here, and in 100 days, you'll have a design portfolio with 100 pieces of work in it. That's cool. You, there's no excuse, right? Um, so the next layer to that is like writing your own briefs. And when yeah. you start to write your own briefs, you, know, you, can, you can start to build equity and ideas. Uh, and I think what I've learned over time has really gotten... Like when you look back at it retroactively, so much of it is the language stuff. It's the naming it's the like positioning of something that is slightly different and really captures like the way you see it and i i wrote something about this last week where you know the title of a book starts to just absorb all of the ideas in the book like you could say anti-fragile and people are like oh yeah, yeah i know like you know people in this world at yeah. least will be yeah. familiar with the overarching themes of that book and that's Another thing in build once, sell twice, like a meta version of that, where you hear that phrase, you don't need to, you might not even need to take the course itself, right? You just understand some of the principles yeah. that are being um, communicated there. So yes, it's like, uh, I've, I had this 
realization a while ago where this is before any of the on like the digital stuff where sometimes the thing you're learning is I know it's not it's not even necessarily in the information it's like the 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 transaction or the thing you do teaches yeah. you the thing it's like wow I just paid a hundred dollars for this thing because I want to learn it maybe I could do that it's totally. uh it's just uh yeah I it's hard to put that into words, but that's that's definitely been uh, feedback that I've gotten too. Is probably eighty percent of the learning comes from outside of the curriculum itself. Is just doing the things that I'm talking about in there every day is actually better teaching vehicle than the reading the thing. Totally, you have a related you know uh, concept of uh, of being API, um, and I remember Naval had a tweet uh, that was like have people do business through you or something, um, which is like a, you know, a, a different version. But um, I, I found the API concept uh, a really interesting one. Thank you. I think that um, that gets to the consistency point too, where like the documentation is kind of detailed enough that people completely understand what it is you do. So a very like tangible before and after of that for me would be, you know, nobody reaching out to me about my creative services to, can you do my deck for me? I'm raising a series A, right? It's like, they know exactly what you can do for them and they ask you for it. Um, And I think underestimating how long it takes to get to that point is the thing that does a lot of people in. And it's, there is this weird bridge where you have to commit to the thing before it's, before it's working to some degree or before it's working at the level you want it to work at. Yeah. And and like having these mental divisions between the thing you do in the day and the thing that you're doing in the mornings and the night that is yet to like reach its activation energy or like to use the boulder analogy, it's not at the top of the hill yet. And, uh, the one thing I would say is maybe an encouraging point to that is, all the reps to get up to the top of the hill, you're still getting something from doing that. And I think yeah. the, like just finding something that you love working on. And, and that's like the piece for me is the, like the puzzle solving thing or the aha moment, the epiphany thing, which I experienced in person with people in these meetings where it's like, Oh, have you thought about just showing it like this? Yeah. Or like the last 20 minutes that you talked about this thing you do, I would just distill it down to that and you see him go, oh, like that. And it's like, can you recreate that moment digitally at scale? And then once you do that, you know, you do whatever you want. Totally. One thing you were really early on and did a number of cool experiments with was NFTs. We were just talking about how you're excited about crypto, but, but you guys have NFTs specifically. Talk about what excited you so much about NFTs what we've kind of learned as an ecosystem, uh, you personally and just us broadly about NFTs and, and where you're excited going forward. So I actually should have been earlier than I was because there's people pestering me in uh, the Visualized Value Discord way back in, in, in crypto years. It's 2020, I think, mid-2020 or late 2020 about NFTs and uh, just saying, like, this is perfect for you. You've been making digital art for two, three years. You should look at this. And I was like, yeah, 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 I'll get around to it. I'll look. This is when CryptoPunks were three bucks or something. And uh, <laughs> wow. so very frustrating uh, yeah, era yeah, by right. me on that one. And uh, I think early 2021, the same people kept pestering me. And I went back <laughs> and looked. The first time I looked at OpenSea and I was just so confused as to what it was. I was like, ah, this is not for me. I don't really get this. Um, yeah. And it took until the one of one marketplaces like foundation started coming out that I really got it. And I was like, oh yeah, curated place to like mint, like art with digital provenance makes total sense. And the thing that attracted it to me originally is, uh, or the, I guess the realization I had originally was I come from the world of marketing, right? Where the art is not the product, the art is the thing that you make to get people interested in the product or to divert someone's attention to the product. So that's like from a very like uh, romantic point of view, that's a very attractive thing where it's like, okay, now I can just make art, right? I can just get paid to make art. I'm an artist now. I always wanted to 
make art for a living, but I've had to find this vehicle that makes that economically viable. For me, that's marketing, advertising, and helping people articulate how their company works so they can raise money and pay me uh, for doing that service for them. So from a like, philosophical perspective, that's what was really interesting about it to me in the beginning. And then I guess the feedback loop that I started to see or realize once I was in that world was doing the thing that I'd been doing for a business, a book, a quote for the medium of NFTs itself and the, the broader discussion going on around what an NFT is, what a blockchain is, why it's important, is digital art real, is it not? And like the, the medium was actually giving me ideas on how to create art that was a commentary on how the world was reacting to this um, technology. So some of the most successful pieces back in 2021 were, were, were visual commentaries on NFTs. Yeah. And that was incredibly exciting, but it was also a moment in time, kind of like, a, I kind of think of it as like, you keep the newspaper from the day, you know, someone's elected and you put that on the wall and that's like becomes an artifact in time. And at the beginning of NFTs, I think that everybody's headspace was there, right? It's like, this is like a world changing thing. It's just incredibly, um, what's the hype cycle thing called? You know, the, the plateau oh, the, of, of productivity at the end yeah. on the right hand side. The drop the expectation. Yeah, that, that yeah, hype yeah, cycle. Yeah. yeah. So we're, so we're like up the vertical slope of that and commenting on, the speed at which the, the slope is going vertical. And um, that obviously settled out towards the end of last year. And my interest in it has only grown since I started um, using it. And a lot of it is difficult to describe. It's kind of like, you know, when you first hear your 56K modem booting up back in the day, it's like, well, this is some, there's something here that's just different and amazing. And the experience you have it's like, yeah, the, I'm never going back. Like, this is, this is a new thing, and this is uh, something I'm going to be playing around with for years and years. And that's, like, one thing that I would encourage anybody that's, like, completely skeptical about it to do is, like, spend $10, like, buying a cheap NFT, sending $5 across, like, time zones, continents, in two seconds for 10 cents. So, that, like, those, like technical realizations i had or like technical epiphanies i had was just like yeah this is obvious like people don't get it yet but it's gonna happen and then the second layer of it i think is my appreciation from it comes from a lot of the stuff i learned with twitter open networks like these like this ability to like build something distributed that has a lot in common and it's more of a true version of that. I think over on a long time scale, it's a truer version of that. There's obviously the speculation that surrounds it kind of clouds the truth of it a little bit. But the people who have collected like one of one digital artwork from Visualize Value, they're like friends for life, you know, like deep conversations with them about the meaning of everything. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, hype and madness around it but there's just there's something really special about owning something even in a in any context your relationship with it changes and it's obviously a philosophical discussion about can you own something digital but this is the closest proxy we have i think people would agree on that yeah. it's like being a renter versus owning a house you just have a completely different relationship with the thing and if you're not a digital artist or you're not interested in digital art, I wouldn't expect people to get it or care. And that's, that goes for, let's transpose that to anything that anyone else cares about that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't care less about. So those are like the overarching things. And then I think getting to like the more infrastructure type implementations of it around visualized value, for example, where if we built a product or a protocol or something that people want to use as a group of people, we don't need uh, like half of people who worked on it live in India or Europe or wherever else. Like we have to form an LLC and we have to get a bank account and we have to have a payroll company and H like yeah. that's 
the thing that's attractive to me and it's definitely not there yet right it's like you still you still have to go through a lot of those steps i think reducing the friction in building collaborating distributing funds and tension like all of that stuff is super obvious to me that that is a better version of the infrastructure that we have today and i'm a huge balaji fan read like the network state um i think visualized value is a contender for that kind of setup where you have this very specific focus that attracts a certain amount of people and i think about like the, what's the gdp or what are the exports of visualized value it is the distillation of knowledge or the the clarif- the clarification of a concept of a difficult to understand thing and other people want to import that for their yeah you know for their benefit and you know the more digital things become the more um the more opportunity i think visualized value as a collective of people has and crypto is just like an a, an infrastructure layer that makes all of that stuff way easier for the same reason i didn't want to start an agency i'm just like i don't want to deal with any of that stuff i don't i don't want to mess around with that stuff if you can write a contract that just says everybody on this gets 10% whenever we get a sign up great let's just do that um totally. and there's like the complete opposite end of that scale is like the really esoteric hey if you want to like invest in this or you want to own this piece of art that represents this moment in time that you think this person did an amazing job of capturing that a million people agree with you on and in 10 years maybe 10 million people agree with you on it's the same way you evaluate any other thing that you want to buy and hold on to i think yeah it's really fascinating kind of zooming out here and gearing towards closing i mean w- one thing that's interesting so I mean, you you were both at a hybrid you know, creator and entrepreneur and really strong at that intersection. You know, most entrepreneurs aren't creators. Most creators aren't entrepreneurs. Even just putting aside creator entrepreneur, another way of framing is like, um, you know, most CEOs, it's hard to be both a visionary and executor, right? That's why you have CEO, COO pairing. And even between like, like you could have someone who's the face of the thing and then someone who's like leading the thing. And I feel like you're gonna have more kind of differences between those two people. I'm just curious as you think about it for yourself and, and um, other creators like, or, or people who are even hybrids because it's, you know, it's hard to have two jobs. Would you bring on at some point like a, a COO type or, or someone who's like, Hey, I Jack, I'm going to like really focus on the brand, really nail the stuff that I can uniquely do, like crush distribution, go all in on that. And then like someone else is going to like build out the, um, you know, not, not only the courses, the things that you already do and scale those, but like, adjacent businesses that like you don't want to do an agency but you'd be helpful to an agency or maybe if someone else did that maybe you'd you'd um you know could hire the people etc maybe you'd want to lend your 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 brand and distribution to it or fund or or something else i almost wonder if there's an opportunity for either an agency for creators or like a a, an incubator that takes people who are amazing at distribution and just says hey you should be in these like five other businesses you know do you want a percentage of them like let's partner on them um that you're not already doing today. What do you, what do you think about that idea either for you yourself or just like more at large? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Actually, as you're speaking, I was in the same way that everything else has kind of been a function of putting stuff out and it coming to me. Like I just don't have the desire to interview people for that. If someone came to me with a plan and said, Hey, we're going to do this, this, and this, I love the stuff. I get it. Let's try it. I'll be like, yeah, let's do it. So like the, the, the thing that stops me is more like this is not in line with the way I want my days to go. Like I don't want to be sitting down interviewing yeah. people. And that, so that's what stopped me. And I think as a business, visualized value could probably be a hundred times bigger than it is today. Like with the, with like a incredible operator, like being way more uh, focused on the things that, you know, more bottom line type metrics and, you know, closing up leaks and getting stuff done the way it needs to be done in a more traditional sense of a business, there's definitely huge amounts of upside there. And I've just optimized, at least in the last few years, for maximum flow, creativity, optionality, all of that stuff. And there's pros and cons to both, right? It's like setting up something of that scale is like, once you make certain decisions, it's hard to 
reverse them. Like there's that that, that is like a, a blessing and a curse to have the optionality you do because you're always having to come up with these new fantastic ideas versus like hey here's something that we can build that has a bit more resilience or sustainability or you know longer sales cycle one of my ambitions that is really um we tried to get this off this off the ground a couple times is um enterprise and education sales for some of the, the visualized value products and there's been a few we've closed a few deals there and it's like getting a person who really gets it to come in and like who maybe has connections with people that can talk to them about distributing this material. A couple of those things have happened organically, which has been really cool. And I think, yeah, there's, there's opportunity to take it in that direction. I think I'm just, uh, it's either, if the right person doesn't show up, I'll never do it. But if they do, I might. That's really totally. what it comes down to, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of people are in the same position. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's really an interesting opportunity. That's a good place to, to wrap as we think about your future. Jack, this has been a been a masterclass on on, on lots of different things. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, and sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Riverside is a presenting sponsor of Media Empires. It's an essential part of our tech stack. Riverside makes scaling a media business possible for us and so many podcasters and creators. It's our online recording studio, not just for the show, but across the entire podcast network. Riverside lets us record interviews with the best guests from wherever they are in the world. Our team can also cut short-form clips directly from Riverside. Because as any listener of this show knows, you create once and then publish everywhere. Sign up for Riverside.fm today by following the link in the description box and use our code MEDIAEMPIRES to get a 20% discount. Turpentine is a network of podcasts, newsletters, and more covering tech, business, and culture, all from the perspective of industry insiders and experts. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from AI with Cognitive Revolution to Econ 102 with Noah Smith. Our other shows drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, and investors, like Moment of Zen and my show Upstream. We're looking for industry-leading hosts and shows along with sponsors. If you think that might be you or your company, email me at eric at turpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co.